we finished last week uh, with Jesus speaking with what is referred to as the, the rich young ruler. He's called that because he was rich and because he was young and because he was a ruler. And Jesus, on one particular day, had this young man come running out to him and kneel down there before Jesus and call him good teacher, good master. And he was acknowledging that about Jesus. And he came with one of the most important questions that a person could ever ask. And I believe that this is the same question today that is of most importance. He says, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus, on this particular occasion, he knew this young man's heart. He knew what was going on inside of him. You see, Jesus is able to see your heart. He's able to see what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in your mind. And he knew in that moment, for this rich young ruler, what was going on in his heart. He called him good teacher. He asked him that question. And then Jesus simply began to give him some of the Old Testament laws. Well, we know as Christians and New Testament Christians, we're not saved by the law. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by keeping the, the Ten Commandments. But Jesus used that law like it was a mirror so that he could look into that law of perfection and to be able to see that he was a sinner that needed to have forgiveness. And it's what the law does today. God is perfect and holy. And when we look at the word of God and we look at the perfection of God, we look at that and we say, I fall so short of that. I need a savior in my life. This young man wanted to know how he could have eternal life. Jesus quoted to him these commandments. And the man said to Jesus, he says, I've done all of these things from my youth, even though he hadn't. He thought he had, just like people today. They think they're all right, but they really aren't. And this young man needed something more. Jesus knew his heart. Jesus looked at him, we're told, and it says that Jesus loved him. Just like he loves each one of you. Just like he loves everyone in this world today. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He told this young man, he says, the one thing that you lack, he just said one, there's one thing that you lack. Go your way, sell what you have, and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Remember, he was a rich young ruler. He had much possessions. He had wealth. Jesus told him, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and then he says, and come, take up your cross and follow me. Well, in this young man's mind, he wanted to know the answer to that question, how he could have eternal life. He wanted to know that, but he wasn't willing to give up the possessions that he had. Just like there are people today that are unwilling to stop doing something to follow God. I love my sin or I love 
my possessions or I, I love this. You could put whatever you want. You could insert whatever you want. But if it stands in front of that and you say, you know what? I love this more than I love salvation. Then I would say you're like the rich young ruler. You're not ready to receive. Jesus, though, loved him. Jesus told the man what he needed to do. And the reason why he put it to him this way is because he knew that this young man desired his possessions more than he desired God. And he, where we read maybe some of the saddest words that we read in the Bible. After Jesus said those words to him, this young man, we're told that he was sad with the words that Jesus had said to him. And it says that he went away sorrowful from Jesus because he had great possessions. What a sad moment. Somebody that wants to have the answer to the most important question, he, he, he's now walking away sorrowful because he couldn't give up his possessions. You see, in God's perspective, having riches and having possessions is really not the problem. That's not the problem with God. God doesn't have a problem with people that have wealth or that have possessions in life. It's only a problem when riches and possessions that they have us. Do you see the difference? God doesn't care about those things and he didn't even care about those things with the rich young ruler. But what he knew about this man's heart is that he was covetous. He was seeking after those earthly possessions and desired those earthly things more than he desired God. You see, Jesus always wants to get to the very heart of the problem. He wants to get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on inside of us. Religion just deals with the outward surface of people. Jesus deals with the heart. He gets down into the inner being of a person. This young man was holding too tight to his things. He was trusting in them more than he was trusting in God. That's the problem. In Luke's gospel in chapter 12, we read on another occasion, on another day, that Jesus was standing before, uh, it puts it, an innumerable multitude of people. That's a large crowd. And they were gathered together to hear Jesus. And it says this crowd was so big that they were trampling one another. So can you imagine what that looks like? And then Jesus, on that day, has one person out of that crowd of people cry out to him. He cries out of the crowd. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. 
Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? This man was just, his crops were multiplying. He had much possessions. And he says, what am I going to do? I can't even house all of this in the buildings that I have. I'll just tear them down. I'll build bigger barns. That's how I'll, that's how I'll take care of it. And I'll even have more. Jesus went on to say in this parable, he says, the man didn't realize, he says that his soul would be required of him today. He wouldn't even have time to build the bigger barns. Jesus says, you fool. You see, it's a foolish thing to want to go on in life and just everything is about this life. Everything is about going forward in this world not realizing that there's something far greater that will follow. God says to him, Jesus says to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those, then, uh, then whose uh, will those things be, he says, which you have provided. So is he who lays up treasure for himself. Listen to this. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, it's all what we pursue. It's what our pursuit is in life that will make a difference of you spending eternity with God or separated from him. A real important thing to consider. In the disciples' mindset, earthly possessions, they were a sign that God's blessing was upon a man. That's how they thought in that day. They knew that even from the blessings that God said he would pour out upon his people under even the old covenant. If you'll be obedient to me, if you'll follow me, then I will pour out my blessings upon you. The disciples in their mind, they were trained in their thinking that really blessings upon a man, material wealth upon a person was a sign that God's blessing was upon him. And not only the, uh, the material things, but it actually, a person that had much wealth, had much material possessions, even people judged their character by the people that were rich. Oh, this truly must be a person blessed by God. Because, you know, that person wouldn't have all of these material goods if God's blessing wasn't upon him. And, you know, we can get deceived that way. We can start thinking that because I have so much, God's truly with me. Because God has done such a great work in the church. God truly is in this place. Look at all the people. Look what God has done. And sometimes that can even be deceptive. Jesus, on a, another occasion, he taught the disciples the dangers of riches upon our hearts. In Matthew 6, 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. Have you ever been robbed in your home? It's a bad feeling when you lose it. But here's the thing, when you lose those things that are your possessions, uh, and, and you just say, you know what, they're God's anyway, they just took God's stuff. You don't get ripped off. That happened to Kathy and I one time when our house got ransacked for four hours and they hauled a bunch of stuff out. And what we had to do is we had to join hands right there in the living room and lift them up and start praying for the salvation of those people that broke into our house. We got a victory shout. It's all God's. We'll pray. God save them. It's just stuff. And you see, it's what we set our hearts upon that make it difficult for us as people here on earth. Jesus went on to say, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. You, you see, the things that are lasting, how many of you have things that have rusted away and rotted out and the whole thing, you know, throw it out. You know, that barbecue that only lasts a year, I bought it and it's already rusted out, it's gone. That's what earthly things will do. They'll rust away, they'll rot away but not the things that we store up in heaven. Jesus went on to say this, and this is the heart of the matter. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where's our treasure? Is your treasure here on earth, or is your treasure being stored in heaven? That same day, that Jesus spoke with this rich young ruler. Remember his disciples were standing there hearing the conversation that Jesus had with him. And the disciples and Jesus saw that rich young ruler walk away. He went away sorrowful. And he, and he, and he walked away from Jesus on that day. Get that picture in your mind as he just walked away until he was out of their sight. Going away sorrowful because he couldn't give up his possessions. Look at your Bibles, Mark chapter 10, verse 23. Then Jesus looked around after he walked away and he said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Those who have riches, Jesus says. You could underline those words. The disciples at this point, they could have argued from what they understood and what they knew and what they had been trained in themselves and their thinking. They could have argued that a prosperous man certainly would be one that would enter into the kingdom of heaven. Somebody that's, that's what they knew. It was confusing to them of Jesus' words. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It didn't make sense even to the disciples. We're told that the disciples that they were astonished at what Jesus just said. That gives you a little bit of understanding of how they thought. They were astonished. Look at verse 24. And the disciples were astonished at his words. 
But Jesus answered again. He's going to put it to them in another way. He answered them again and he said to them, children, how hard is it for those, and look what he says here, those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Those who have riches, he said first, and then he qualifies it by saying, those who trust in riches. You see, that's really the problem. If you look ahead at verse 26, you're going to see that the disciples also become greatly astonished. Do you see the progression in this? With the words that Jesus is saying to them, now they're greatly astonished at his words. Riches, possessions, were a sign of God's blessing upon a man. That's the way they were thinking. Paul gave a warning, the Apostle Paul, about trusting in riches, trusting in possessions. He gave a warning in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. He says, now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can, con- that we can carry nothing out of this world. It's certain. I-, I hope none of you think you're going to be able to load up a trailer and pull it behind you when that day comes to go to be with the Lord. You won't be able to take any of your stuff with you. It's all going to stay back here and be burned and rust away and it's going to be gone. Those things won't go. Paul says we can carry nothing out of this world. And then he says, and having food and clothing, those two things, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say that money in itself is evil. It's just a tool that we use to trade. It's the love of money. It's the desire towards riches. The desire towards possessions that can bring destruction upon people. It's the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's a pretty straightforward warning about those that would desire riches over the true riches that we could have in eternity It's been said that a rich man without God is just a poor man with money. I love that. Let me say it again. A rich man without God is just a poor man with money. It just all depends on what you desire the most in life. What's driving you in life. Jesus now goes on to expound even further this thought with his disciples. Why? Because they're still wrestling with it. Look what he says to them in verse 
25. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, I think they're, they're, they're thinking what Jesus had said and what Jesus is saying here, they're thinking it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus just said here, it's impossible that somebody has material possessions, that is rich, that has wealth, that it's impossible for them to enter the kingdom of God. That was bucking up against the way they always learned and what they always thought. The problem with the disciples, and it's a problem a lot of times with us, is that it's easy to get things skewed in our minds. It's easy to get even doctrine, biblical doctrine, out of balance. We can think of things in a wrong way. And sometimes those thinkings go on for a long time. You know, we get something mixed up in our minds about God and about a truth of the Bible, a doctrine of Scripture, and sometimes we go on and on for a long time thinking that way. And this is one of those opportunities for the Lord to kind of clear up some misconceptions in the minds of his disciples. Remember, they're learning, just like we do. They're learning right now from the Lord. Really, he's answering this question to them about riches and the hindrance that could have upon a person entering into the kingdom of heaven. These disciples, they were already astonished at Jesus' words. Now they're going to be greatly astonished by what he just said. Look what he says in verse 26. And they were greatly astonished, saying amongst themselves. So, so they're having this discussion now over what Jesus just said. Who then can be saved? Who can be? But Jesus looked at them and he says, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. The picture Jesus gave to them was for the purpose of driving home a point. He wanted to drive home this point with his disciples. He used this picture. You know, you know what a sewing needle is. And you know how small the hole is at the top of that needle. And then he contrasts it with one of the largest animals in Israel, a camel that was there. And he's saying this camel passing through this little eye of a needle that, that seems impossible, doesn't it? That's the way the disciples tell you what you're speaking and how you're speaking to us right now. Then somebody that's rich, somebody that has material, it would literally be impossible for them to go to heaven. But that's not what we've always known. We thought the blessings of God were upon the rich. I wonder how many of us that are here this morning were, that we were an impossibility in the eyes of somebody that was praying for you for a long time. You know, we all have those, don't we? We have family members that we've been praying for for years. 
And quite often we think in our minds, or maybe we even say, God, is it even possible that this person is going to come to know you? I've been praying and praying and looking and waiting upon you. And God, it just seems like it's impossible that they're ever going to turn to you. Will they ever come to you? That's what the disciples were were astonished by, greatly astonished with the words of Jesus. But we need to remember that the things that are impossible for man, they're possible with God. You see, that's what we stand upon as Christians. It's why we continue to labor in prayer and pray for those individuals that seem hard, that seem like they don't want to hear. And we just continue to pray and pray and pray because we know that God, with God, all things are possible. With us, I can't change their heart. I can't move them to repent, to turn to the Lord. But you can, God. And so we pray. God's mercy God's grace makes what's impossible for man possible with God. When you start wondering whether God wants to save somebody that you've been praying for, when you start questioning whether or not God is able to save that person, to do something miraculous, in that person's life to lead them to Him, then we need to look to the Word of God. And the Word of God tells me this, in 2 Peter 3.9, that our Lord is not slack concerning His promises. God has made promises. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering In other words, God is very patient even towards those people in the world that reject, they reject, they reject, and they continue to reject that salvation that is given for them. But God is patient. He's been patient with us. He's patient with those who still don't know the Lord. He's long-suffering towards us. And then it tells us this. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That word any and that word all includes every single one of us here. It includes everyone in this world that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of our God. God doesn't send people to hell. He doesn't want people to go to hell. If people end up in hell, it's because they've climbed into hell, not because God sent them there. Jesus loved that rich young ruler, and he allowed him to go away sorrowful because he had a heart of covetousness, but God wanted to save him. Jesus wanted to save that young man's life. All of this was stirring up the disciples. And we know Peter, don't we? Peter, the one that was quite often the first one to open his mouth. We might be that type. Peter was that type. Quick to open his mouth. Quick to say something to the Lord. Look at verse 28. Then Peter began to say to Jesus, 
See, we have left all and followed you. And keep, keep in mind, this is in light of the rich young ruler that went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful because he had much possessions. Jesus, we've given it all up to follow you. We left all of those things back and we're following you. Peter's, it's, it's rolling around. He's thinking in his head. He says to Jesus, see, we've left all, Jesus, to follow you. It's interesting that, I haven't done this before, but I, it says in verse 28, then Peter. You see those two words, then Peter? I looked it up to see how many times do we see those words, then Peter. And I found that above the other disciples, it's found 21 times in the New Testament. Some of the times it's a good thing that he's saying, and other times it's not so good. But Peter was one to quick to say something 21 times, then Peter. And the discussion about possessions that Jesus had, I, I think it struck a chord with Peter. I think Peter was thinking about that, this rich young ruler. I, I, I think he, it made him think about all that they had left to follow Jesus. But here's something that's interesting that we don't see in Mark's gospel, but we do see it in Matthew's account of this same story. Matthew 19.27 says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. And then it adds this on. Therefore, what shall we have? Oh, okay. Okay, what shall we have, Jesus? We've left it all. Okay, so what do we get for this? What are you going to give to us for giving it all up and following you? Gives you a little bit of a insight into what was going on in Peter's mind. Jesus, he's so gracious. He's so forgiving and gracious. In verse 29, Jesus answers and, answers and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. <laughs> he adds that on in that interesting with persecutions. In the ages to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus went on to address Peter's words. We've left it all. To follow, and, and, and what shall we get from this, is what Peter was asking. Jesus wanted Peter, and he wanted the other disciples to know, you'll never outgive God. No matter how much you think you've given up for him, you'll never outgive him. He'll always give you back more than what you gave out. That's important to know. But he says about this leaving of all of these things. I remember when 
My family and I, we left to Wales in the UK in 2002 to go plant a church there. And on the very first Sunday that we arrived in the UK, we sat down on a Sunday morning service and the pastor that was teaching that morning was teaching out of the book of Matthew. His text for that Sunday morning was Matthew 19.29 and it reads this way. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my namesake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now I remember sitting there on that Sunday morning thinking to myself, what perfect timing, Lord. We just arrived in the UK. We just sold the house. We just left family back there. We just left our land back there in the United States. We've made this move here to the UK to do a work in your name, to go out with the gospel in your name. As I was reading and hearing this list, I was thinking, you know, brother leaving house and brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. And I thought, you know what, I, uh, we did that. And it, it is like it was jumping off the page at me. I didn't leave Kathy, though. And I didn't leave the kids behind. And they wouldn't let me do that. So, I mean, I, I, I brought them along. No, I, they wanted to go. But we did leave our country behind. We did leave our family members behind, so to speak, to go do what God had called us to do. And I'm thinking in my mind, Lord, what a promise you're giving us here. Our first day, as we're sitting there a little bit shaky, thinking, what have we done to be here and to make this move and to, to do this? And, God, you're going to be faithful. You've just given us a promise on our first day. And what I came to realize after spending six years in the UK is that from the time that we arrived to the time that we left the UK, God fulfilled every bit of what we left behind and gave us that and more in the UK. Not greater in value to what was back there, but he gave us more. He gave us a place to live. Rent free when we arrived in the country. We left a house and we came to a house from day one. We left family, but he gave us a whole new family that was beginning to grow. You see, you can never outgive God. You can never do anything that God won't say. I'll give it back to you a hundredfold. It's a way of Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to bless you. You serve me, you give it up for me, I will bless you. It's what he's telling his disciples. But then he says in verse 31, but many who are first will be last. And the last first. This was another problem. We're going to see it as we go on in the chapter later. Another problem that Jesus had already addressed with them. He's going to address it again. Promises are incredible. If you 
are living for the Lord, if you're looking for his promises, then you're going to see them. They're all the way through the word of God. You'll experience them firsthand in life. You'll see how God works in situations in your life. And you know what? In my mind, when I think about leaving the United States to go to Wales to go do the Lord's work, God doesn't owe me a thing for doing that. He didn't owe me or my family anything for leaving those things behind to go serve him in the UK. As a matter of fact, we owe him our lives. He doesn't owe me anything for it. And here he is giving a promise that I'll give it back to you a hundredfold. And not only does he say a hundredfold, and he doesn't say just in the future, he says in this life. That's pretty incredible. You mean I don't even have to wait for eternity? That God will show me his promises here and now? He does. Will there be something of reward in the future? Yes. Are you willing to be last to receive those things? Or do you need it now? Are you willing to be the last in line or do you always have to be the first in line? You know, what are we going to get out of this, Lord? We've left it all. What do we get out of it? What do we get from this? It's been said that Christ is no man's debtor. Anything that we do for the Lord, it's not like, you know, hey, God, you're indebted to me now. You know, maybe you give me the promises. You're indebted to me. I gave it all up for you. No, we're not indebted to him. And he'll never let you be. Feel that way because he'll, bless, he'll turn around and bless you. you. You know, we do it even in the wrong way sometimes. And God still turns around and blesses our life. He's very gracious towards us. Very forgiving. Look how he was with the disciples. It's how he is with us. This promise in verse 30. That you shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands with persecution. He adds this little bit on here with persecutions. And is that a blessing? I mean, persecute, what? Leave that out. I'm not looking for the persecutions as a blessing. Apostle Paul did. He counted himself worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That's a whole different mindset, isn't it? To say that I, I count myself worthy to suffer for Christ in his name, for his service, to, it's a blessing. That somebody would actually persecute you for what you say you are. I'm a Christian. We don't like Christians here. We don't like you Christians. Praise the Lord that they see something in me that's different. Praise the Lord if, God, if anybody in this world sees something different about you as a Christian. If they persecute you for it. If they say every evil thing against you for it. Can you praise the Lord and say praise God. And I'm not talking about being a weird Christian. I'm talking about just living your life and being real. Being a real Christian unashamed of your faith. 
Not a weird one. That, you know, get out, you're acting weird. We're, we're real people that God wants to use in a real world and God wants to, our lights to shine. We'd be different. The disciples also needed to know that if you give up, if you do something for Christ, because it'll pay you something, if you give to the Lord anything, and the only reason you give is because you think there's going to be a payday, something's going to come back to you. I like another quote that I read. If you give because it pays, it won't pay. If you give because it pays, it won't pay. You see, God knows our hearts when we give even. And if we're given out of the wrong motives, we'll talk about this right at the end here, but it's all going to be burned up. In Matthew's account, Jesus added a parable to this chapter 10 of Mark. We don't have that parable here in Mark's gospel. You'd have to, to turn and you can turn there to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to finish on this. Matthew chapter 20. Jesus gave a parable to his disciples concerning rewards and, and laboring for the Lord and the rewards that we would receive from him. It says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So we might say that uh, this landowner here, who is a, a picture of, of God, this landowner, <coughs> he goes out, and he finds laborers to come and work in his vineyard. And we're told that it doesn't tell us the time, but it was probably at sunrise. It was very early in the morning when Jesus called these laborers into his vineyard. Look at verse 2. When he had agreed with the laborers, in other words, they kind of bargained. They bartered this thing out. How much are we going to get paid for this day's worth of work. It was agreed upon that a denarius, which was a reasonable day's pay at the time, uh, they agreed upon that and then they were sent out into the vineyard to go work for the full day. The landowner again went out about the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning, just a few hours later. And he saw that there were other people standing in the marketplace. And he went up to them and he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I'll give you. There was no bartering, no talking about the pay. If you want to work, go into the vineyard and we'll work it all out. So they went, we're told. And then he went out at the sixth hour, at 12 noon, three hours later after that. And also at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. And he did the same thing with all these people, sending them off into the, the vineyard to go work. At the eleventh hour, which is five o'clock in the afternoon, he went out and he found others that were standing idle. They were just hanging out, standing idle. And he said to them, 
Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one's hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you'll receive. It's five o'clock in the afternoon. Six o'clock, nine o'clock, twelve, three, and five spread out over the whole day. People showing up in the vineyard, all the workers coming to the vineyard. Verse 8, so when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers now and, and give them their wages, beginning, look what he says, beginning with the last to the first. Beginning with the last to the first. Can you imagine what the workers were thinking? They're all standing there about ready to receive their wages. Wait a second, God. From the last... You're talking about, you're, you're talking about the ones that showed up at the end of the day. We're going to start with them first. And those of us that were out at the crack of dawn, you're going to wait, make us wait until last? It's not right. Why, why should we have to wait? And how many times as Christians do we do that? We want to be at the best table. We want to be at the front of the line. We want to... That's not our Lord. And when those, verse 9, came who were hired, about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. Do you see that? And they likewise received each a denarius. Put yourself in that spot. Starting at six in the morning, in the heat of the day, it says, working all day long. Somebody comes at five o'clock, works an hour, shows up, and the same pay is given to all. It's not right. Not only do you make us wait, but you pay is the same. See, the way God does things is not the way we always think of things or do things. God does things differently. That's why He's always blowing our minds. We're thinking, you know what, Lord? Look who you are. Look what's so different about you. That's not the way I would handle it. That's not the way I would even receive it. Look at verse 11. And when they had received it, what does it say? They complained against the landowner. I think I might have been one of those complainers. I don't know about you, but people all day and somebody's working for an hour and we all get the same? I don't like that. That's my flesh. But if I know this, I'm going, okay, God, yeah, okay, yeah. That happens in ministry. People show up at the very last. And that's all they can make it. We're there all day working. They show for the last hour, and you know, then they go, and, and that's all they can do that day. They had to work their other job, and then they show up. Yeah, thanks for getting here. You know, and, and, and all the while, God is saying, you know what, I'm going to honor that person that showed up for that last hour of work, and he did it with the same heart as you did being here all day, except you're the one that's complaining. 
this person is going to get reward and you might lose all your reward and you put five hours in more than him. That's the way it works when it comes to rewards and loss of rewards. God sees our heart is what he's going to reward us for. Verse 12, and we're almost done, saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have bore the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Do you not agree with me for a denarius? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? Here's the landowner, representative of God. Delving out rewards. Delving out the things that he gets. People complaining. People not saying, you know what, God's measuring stick for rewards and loss of rewards is not like ours. It's not the business world. It's God working with us at a a different level. Verse 16. Here it is. So the last will be first. And the first last. For many are called. But few are chosen. What lessons can we take away? You see all true believers. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There will be a day of rewards. And loss of rewards for you. For me. It's coming. When we stand in the presence of God someday. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Though it's not the great white throne judgment. It's the Bema seat in in Greek. It's the Bema judgment seat of Christ. The rewards will be determined by God. Not by man. He's the landowner. He's the one that will give out the rewards in that day. And why is he best to do that? Because he sees the heart. And he knows exactly what should be rewarded and what should burn up. You see, the the Bible likens it unto a fire that refines those things. Wrong intents, wrong reasons why I do what I do. Those things will be burned up. The rewards will be based upon the things we did from a right heart. From a right spirit. These first group of laborers that bargained for their wages, the last of the workers, they just simply had to fall on the grace and mercy of God. Here we are getting paid the same. Here I am standing in heaven and I've only been a Christian for a year. This saint has been a Christian for 50 years. A lot of that Stuff that hit the fire burned up. A lot of effort went in in all those years. And here's this saint standing there with not very many years getting rewarded greatly. You see, it's going to be an eye-opening day on that day. Because God searches the heart. And God is also sovereign. 
He does as he pleases. Who are we to say to the to the to 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 the uh, to God? Who are we to say to Him? Why would you do this or why would you do that? God's God. He does what He wants to do, not what we want Him to do, but what He wants to do. And He's always fair, just, and holy in everything that He does. The grace and mercy of God extended to those who really didn't even deserve the wages. They still got paid, but they complained. You know how you do start out doing something for the Lord of the right heart, and then all of a sudden, you know, something gets into the mix that pretty soon you're getting all bitter and you're getting all, you know, worked up about it. And, you know, and now, I, you know, now, you know, I'm serving these kids here. I'm doing this at church and do it. Oh, yeah, started out well. You see, it's not always how we start out. It's how we finish that God is going to reward. We've all been called into the vineyard. As Christians, every true believer is going to be rewarded someday for what they have done for the Lord out of the right heart or what they have not done out of a right heart. And God will call that loss of rewards. Rewards we thought we were going to get, but we're not. It's going to be, a, I guess I would call it a day of big surprises. For the Christian when they stand before the Lord. I used to tease one of my friends. Christian friend of mine. You know those asbestos suits? You know what asbestos is? It doesn't burn very easy. I used to tell him. I said you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put on an asbestos suit. If I happen to be standing behind you at the Bema seat. Because when that stuff hits the fire. And that blast furnace comes out. <laughs> You know, I don't want to be burned up with you. It's going to be that sort of thing. I don't know what all that's going to look like. But we know that what the Bible talks about is that there's going to be this refining by fire. Where it's going to reveal and bring out really what the motive in the heart was. And you will either be rewarded for that or you will receive a loss of reward. And it tells us in the book of of Corinthians where this speaks about this you can read it in 1 Corinthians 3 9 but it says if anyone's works is burned up he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved yet so as by fire you see there's going to be a lot of people that might stand before the Lord in that day saved I'm in kingdom of God I'm in heaven but when it comes to the work side of it and the rewards for those things done, they just kind of, a lot of it just went up in smoke. There wasn't much left. But praise the Lord I'm here. Praise the Lord that I'm in heaven. Praise the Lord that he saved me. And I think there'll be rejoicing both sides of that. But how much better to go into eternity knowing that you have stored up treasure in heaven that neither moth nor rust will corrupt. It'll go on for eternity.